You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Today's podcast is brought to you by Ovation Fertility, a leader in the field of IVF lab services. Ovation partners with some of America's leading fertility specialists to provide a range of services to support fertility treatment, including fertility testing, IVF, egg donation, surrogacy, genetic testing, and long-term storage of reproductive material. You can learn more about Ovation at OvationFertility.com. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from National Fertility Center. And today I'm joined with my co-host and very good friends, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello, hello. And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hey, how are you guys doing? Doing great. Boy, I can't believe time is just flying by. We're almost here at the end of January, heading into February. And we were just kind of talking about Valentine's Day stories. And Susan teased us with a Valentine's Day story that she had. And we said it could be either good or bad. So I think hers is good. But tell us your story, Susan. So I actually got engaged on Valentine's Day. Oh, what a sweet story. It is. It is. And what was the neat thing was my husband's parents actually got engaged on Valentine's Day. And we dated for three and a half years before getting engaged. And he kept that little tidbit secret that whole time. So you, it's not like you were expecting it on that particular Valentine's Day. He did, did he, What did he do? How did he propose to you? It was back when we were in college and at Texas A&M, they have something called the century tree. It's obviously a very, very old oak tree. Uh-huh. And um, one of his friends, I was supposedly taking the girlfriend to their engagement on a scavenger hunt. And I was supposed to be the last part that took her to the century tree, where in fact, it was actually her taking me to the century (laughs) tree. And um, he was in the Corps of Cadets. And so they did the whole like saber arch thing. And wow. So this was like a big, big deal then. It was a big deal. And it was, it was pretty funny because earlier that morning I had called my parents to wish them happy Valentine's day. And so Texas A&M is about two and a half hours away from where I grew up. They were like walking out the door when I called at home. (laughs) And so my mom was like trying to like get me off the phone, but not make me suspicious or anything so she could get in the car. No cell phones back then or not readily available? There were cell phones, but it wasn't like cell phones like we do now where you make calls all the time. You know, you still like yeah. paid for your minutes. and Like you had to wait until after 9 p.m. because that's when the minutes were free. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So like how many cadets were lined up? Gosh, I would probably say 20-ish. Wow. So, So, okay. So like, I'm trying to, so this was like on what day of the week? Like it was on a weekend. I remember it was on a weekend. So it was a Saturday or Sunday. Mm -hmm. So when you and your friend get there, the cadets are there too, or? Oh yeah. Yeah. So did she just say, JK, this is you push go. (laughs) It was really kind of funny because, so we, we met at another part of campus and I was supposed to bring her from that part of campus to the century tree. And it was actually kind of drizzly rainy and stuff. And so I had like this giant umbrella because we didn't want to get wet. And so we like get there and you couldn't see like the guy at the end of the, at the end of the saber arch at that moment. And I was like, okay, go through. And she's like, no, it's you. 
<laughs> I'm like, oh, no. And so like, it was funny because we have it videotaped and stuff. And there's this whole thing with like, she's like trying to push you. and you're She's trying, trying to take the umbrella <laughs> from me. And I'm like, no, <laughs> it was cute. It was very special. So when you see that saber arch thing, you know, somebody's about to get engaged. Is that the deal yeah. with the saber? Oh, okay. And you thought she was going to get engaged, but you were the one getting engaged. Correct. Oh, what That's a cool awesome. story. That's an awesome story. What about you, Carrie? Do you have any funny or happy Valentine's Day stories? So the first maybe two, three years that my husband and I were together, we, I say we, I mean, I had a track record of just annihilating whatever special occasion it was like birthdays, <laughs> Valentine's Day, anniversaries. I have set off fire alarms. I have set legit fires. I have done I've picked the worst dates that we have been on to this day. Now that we've been together for many years that if I say the year, I'm going to get it wrong. And I don't, my husband might listen to this and I don't want to get in trouble, but like we, we have been together for the better part of 16 ish, 17 years now. Um, some of the worst dates I planned from our early days for special occasions. So the Valentine's day story was I had planned the super romantic picnic on the floor of his apartment because we were med students and we had no money. And so I had planned like, was going to light candles and picked up dinner from a restaurant and all of these things. So no, I did not burn his house down. That would have been a bad one. <laughs> there a fire involved? That was not the fire story. You know, I put him in the car and I put a blindfold on him and I drove him in all these convoluted circles and I grabbed dinner real quick and put it in the back so we couldn't smell it and then went to take him back to his apartment. And so I left him in the car for a few minutes and I run upstairs with the food. And as I'm doing that, the food goes flying. Oh, like no. Styrofoam everywhere. Oh. Fortunately, one of them didn't really open, so it was okay. But the other one went everywhere. Um, and so I'm like scrambling to pick up steak and potatoes and all that Aww. stuff and put it up there. I get it up there. I fix, uh, I salvage as much as I can dump the rest of it, go downstairs. I open the door to the car and I thought I was gone like maybe six minutes. Apparently it was like 20. <laughs> so my poor boyfriend at the time, now husband is sitting there in the car blindfolded very patiently. And I open the door, like super excited. He jumps out of his skin because he is scared to death because he has been sitting in absolute <laughs> silence for the past 20 minutes. <laughs> then we go upstairs and we have our date and everything is fine. But yeah, I still have images of picking up pieces of dinner out of the gravel out in front of his apartment Aww. when we were in med school. Aww. At least it didn't completely knock the wind out of your sails, though. He still went on and had your dinner, so... Oh, yeah. No, yeah. Oh, he's the best. But well, my husband has had many very he's really good at Valentine's days and he's really does lots of really nice things and gifts. But the story I thought of when you guys were talking was a story when I was in medical school and it was my med school boyfriend. And at the time I lived in a house close to campus with two other people, um, a guy and a girl who actually are to this day married that were in my med school class. And so I essentially rented a room in their house for a couple of years, my last two years of medical school. And so right before I moved in, they got this one great dame, Bonnie, the female. And, you know, she was just a puppy then. And then about the time I moved in, they said, well, Bonnie's gotten really lonely. So we decided to get Bo. And Bo, literally, if he stood up on his hind paws, 
put his paws on the shoulder of somebody that was 6'2", he'd be looking eye to eye. So these were humongous dogs. They were sweet as could be. But, you know, if they got bored, they'd like chew the edge off the couch or take somebody's shoe and chew it to pieces. Or, you know, they just, they were different than having a small dog for sure. And so my med school boyfriend and I at the time went out to eat for Valentine's Day. And I had spent all day, not all day, but spent a while making some cookies from scratch. I made two dozen like chocolate, chocolate chip cookies and, you know, was, and kind of had them in my bedroom and had the door shut, but I had French doors that opened fairly easily, but I had the door shut, had my cookies there. So we went out to eat. And so then we came back home and I was going to give him the cookies. And I went over and looked and it was literally on my dresser was like an empty plate. And I looked and I mean, there was not a cookie. There was not a crumb. There was not syrup. There was nothing there. I thought he was playing a joke on me or something. I thought my roommates were playing a joke and they were gone. And I said, did you do something with these cookies? And he was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, anyway, as I looked closer on the floor, there was like maybe three or four crumbs of cookies. And both of the Great Danes were like laying over in the corner of the room, like just scratched <laughs> out because they had eaten two dozen chocolate chip cookies. And they were, there's not a nut, not one cookie inside, just a few crumbs. So anyway, <laughs> moral of that story, if you got Great Danes that you live with, hide everything really high. <laughs> That's funny. So today we're going to talk about some questions. We're going to go through some questions of the day. And Susan, do you have a question for us? I do. Okay. So our first question is, love your show. It made me feel so much more confident, hopeful about the future. In fact, it makes me geek out about fertility treatments. Thank you all for everything. My husband, who's 37, and I, 34-year-olds, have had two miscarriages this year with the embryo not developing past six weeks, um, both found at the eight-week ultrasound. Both times we got pregnant our second month of trying, I decided immediately to see an RE because of the emotional stress and anxiety with the first two pregnancies. Um, they had testing done. Everything came back normal with a, except for a slightly elevated anticardiolipin at 19, um, which they're having retested. Um, they also had chromosomes done, which was normal, normal HSG. She has longer but regular periods about every 35 days. Our RE said we can try again on our own if we'd like, but they have new health insurance that would cover 90% of IVF costs. Should we try again or just go to IVF? Is there anything else you'd be alarmed about? Numbers for her, she's got AMH of 8, TSH normal, prolactin normal, semen analysis, concentration was good, motility was 35%, and morphology at 3%. All right. What do you think, ladies? So it's a tough one, especially when essentially all the testing is normal. Now there's like a couple of two of those sperm parameters are just a hair low, nothing dramatic, but enough so that doesn't hit the minimums we're usually looking for. Um, her AMH is pretty high, which tends to be beneficial more than anything in the long run when you're looking at fertility, um, particularly if she's got regular cycles. So I think a lot of this is just really what's what's your big picture plan and how are you doing with all of this? Because on the on the one hand, if you want three kids, do IVF get those embryos banked? Because I'm not so worried about the first one. I'm thinking more about babies two and three. You may struggle a little bit more just due to the natural age-related decline in fertility. If you only want one kiddo, then 
it may not be a bad idea to just try on your own. To a degree, looking at the emotional angst associated with this is probably worthwhile. Some people feel feel better when they are doing things. IVF can offer you the opportunity to do some genetic testing that you would otherwise not get the opportunity to do beforehand. So if you look at this and go, oh my God, I cannot do another miscarriage because I will lose my mind, then it may be worth it for you to go through IVF. But that's a tough question because many of us see lots of miscarriage patients and we're we're looking at how do we how do we help you get through this? And there's not a clear answer. Yeah, that's, I think, why, why we both hesitated to answer because there's really not a clear answer. It really kind of depends on your personal situation. I think the fact that you have really good insurance coverage would make me sort of say, well, you know, IVF would, would be a great option because, you know, about half of the miscarriages we think are due to a genetic abnormality. And if you're able to take half of that issue out of the mix, overall, presumably you would assume that your chances are better of getting pregnant. You know, there's so many things that have to happen when a woman gets pregnant that unfortunately we just don't have tests for those. And so a lot of times when we do the recurrent pregnancy loss workup that's sort of endorsed by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, it really doesn't hit a lot of different areas. I mean, there's things that we routinely do, but there's a lot of things probably that we don't have tests for that could cause issues. And so the nice thing about IVF, it controls a lot more of the steps in the process. And, you know, we can say for the average woman, you know, if you have a genetically normal embryo, you still have a great chance of getting pregnant. You know, the odds are probably better than 50% with a current pregnancy loss patient that you're going to get pregnant and hopefully stay pregnant. You know, certainly no guarantees, but I just think you, you know more information and we're more confident if we transfer a genetically normal embryo you know, it's going to implant and grow. And so, you know, I, I agree with Carrie, if you're only kind of planning on one baby and if emotionally you can kind of tolerate, you know, the fear of going through all that again and, you know, the, and the physical part of it as well, you know, sometimes it takes a few months to kind of get things back to normal again once you've miscarried. If you can tolerate all that, you know, I think it's kind of like pulling the lever on the shot, slot machine. If you do it enough times, I think you're going to probably be okay without having to do IVF. But just I think IVF gives you more certainty about your embryos and it gives you a little bit more certainty about your chances of pregnancy. What are your thoughts, Susan? So I completely agree with the two of you. What I usually say is that, you know, the data shows us that in most people with recurrent pregnancy loss, that you are going to be successful. Our problem is we can't tell you if that success is going to happen on pregnancy number three for you or pregnancy seven, eight, or nine. And I have had patients who have done that seven, eight, or nine. I would say that tends to be the exception to the rule. So please don't hold yourself to that standard. It's a very, very personal decision. And you are the only one who knows kind of where you are in your emotional cup half full, cup half empty type of situation. And so if you're at the point where you're like, I need to be proactive and I understand that there is potentially a cost associated with that but that's what I want to do, then I'd say go for IVF. It is not a wrong decision, but it's also not a wrong decision to keep on trying on your own, understanding that you know there, there, is, a, there is a chance that you may end up going through this again. So I think that's my words of advice. All right. So on to our next question, what is the best treatment plan for diminished ovarian reserve diagnosis? We were told IVF, but told our success rate was pretty low, less than 40%. And it was such a huge investment, we opted out. I'm in a position to swing IVF now five years older. Can I increase my chances? Hmm. So I guess my question would be what, so her ovarian reserve was low five years ago? Yes. 
So it would make me worry that it's even lower now. You know, the advantage of IVF, and this is directly from Susan, and I use this all the time, you know, when we stimulate you, we try and get a year's worth of eggs at one time, (laughs) which is a great analogy. I use that all the time now. And so, you know, but those eggs are now five years older than they were before. And so the concern is, I mean, the advantage is we stimulate a whole bunch of eggs and we hope that when we put the egg and the sperm together, that we can find at least one genetically normal embryo. But right now, I'm worried that you just have a lower number of eggs and we are less likely to find a normal embryo. If cost is not an issue, which I always say it's cost is an issue for everybody, but if cost is less of an issue now, you can certainly try. You know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. And every now and then, I have a patient that has really low ovarian reserve and they really surprise me in how they stimulate. However, the average person that has low ovarian reserve you know, in our practice, I think something like 25 to 30% never make it to egg retrieval because they just don't stimulate well enough. You know, it's one of those things, it's kind of like, you know, jumping off a ledge, you got to sort of take a leap of faith. And also, you know, financially, you're taking a leap. For most patients, though, if the, by at least in our practice, by about day six or seven, if it doesn't look like a particular patient is going to make more than one or two eggs, we'll talk to the patient and say, you know, it's probably just not worth your time and money and risk to you to continue on. And, you know, you will have spent a few thousand dollars on medicine probably, but you wouldn't have spent the majority of the cost, which is primarily the egg retrieval and growing the embryos in the lab. So, uh, you know, if money's not an issue, which again, it is for everybody, I, you know, if it were me personally, I would try and see what happens because if you're going to do it, now's the time to do it. I wouldn't wait another year or two because your egg quality is only going to get worse over time. What are your thoughts, Carrie? I think some of this depends on what her actual age is right now. You know, if she was 40 before and she's 45 right now, I might counsel a little bit differently of, you know what, the odds are extraordinarily low just based on being 45. Right. I have definitely taken patients to to retrieval before. And, and this is usually filled with multiple conversations ahead of time that say, look, we're only going to get one or two eggs. And there is a very low likelihood, but I have had enough one follicle, one egg, one embryo, one baby where if they want to do it and they they're okay with that and usually counsel to high heaven, then we'll do it. There's also a lot of one follicle, one egg, that's it. And and it stops there. So I kind of have the perspective of if you really need to do it to get closure for yourself so you can move on to egg donation, or if you want to take the chance, like, you know, I have, I have patients who have amazing insurance coverage or the financial is less concerning. And, and so we do multiple cycles and we see what we can get. You know, I'm usually it's other circumstances that will make a patient stop with treatment before I will stop on them. And it's with a ton of counseling because, I don't want to be doing things that are never going to, or very low likelihood of working. You never say, you never say always, and you never say never been humbled too many times in too many ways from those two words, Um, but, (laughs) but you make sure, okay, the patient knows this is what your percentage is. And then they get to make the decision because the patient's the only one who's going to be able to say, this is worth it to me, or this is not worth it to me. And patients tend to feel pretty secure in their decisions. I found um, if they know what the stakes are. What do you think, Susan? I kind of tend more on the side of what Carrie was saying. I, I don't cancel a whole lot of cycles if I have something stimulating. Again, with the appropriate counseling and things like that. Again, I never say never because I've seen never happen. So then there's always that chance. And again, like Carrie said, you know, if you were 40 and now you're 45, that is a different conversation than you were 30 and now 35. And also knowing that people with diminished ovarian reserve, I mean, obviously time is never our friend, 
But I mean, I've had people who, you know, they went through something when they were a little bit younger, had diminished ovarian reserve. They come back two, three, four, five years later and they're like, we really want to try one more time. And I'm like, okay, well, let's see what where your markers are at this moment, just to make sure it's not astronomically different. And a lot of times it's relatively comparable with the understanding that age is adding into that factor. So it's not like things truly stayed the same, especially in diminished ovarian reserve. We don't know if, did you start off with a lower egg cohort than everybody else in when you were an embryo yourself, you know, or did something like an autoimmune process or, you know, whatever happened, happened. We don't know what individual people's trajectory are. We know that as you get older, that trajectory does get worse and it gets worse faster and faster. But what that exact rate is, is going to vary from person to person. All right. Next question. I am 34, husband is 36. So far, my diagnosis is unexplained infertility. AMH is 1.8, which was tested six months ago. Follicle counts have been low. We started IVF and I had my first egg retrieval yesterday. From 11 antral follicles a cycle, they retrieved six eggs. Two were mature. They exceed both and one fertilized. Still waiting and hoping one will become a healthy embryo, but devastated by these results. What insight do you have on why my eggs didn't mature? Any advice for future cycles? Let's see. Details, uh, BMI 26, working to lose 10 pounds, diagnosed with borderline hypothyroidism, negative for Hashimoto's, taking Synthroid, thyroid levels are in check, otherwise healthy. IVF protocol involved two weeks of OCPs, followed by four days of stem medications, 450 units of gonal F, 40 units of low-dose HCG. On the eighth day, added 250 micrograms of Ganarelics, did stems for 12 days, and on day 14, triggered with Luprolide and HCG, did a blood test to confirm trigger worked. Thank you so much. Your podcast is helpful. So that sounds like a pretty healthy... Stim cycle in terms of the things that I look for. Did you get enough stim time? And 14 days is going to be enough. Usually it's much shorter when you run into maturity problems. The other thing is, did you get an adequate trigger? And you got a dual trigger, which is helpful. And they check levels. So presumably you know, that information is your clinic satisfied with that. You know, we know from some of our research that going long doesn't typically degrade the quality of the eggs, um, which is nice to know. I think overall, it, it looks like there's probably some kind of unspecified egg issue going on as to why you're having difficulties getting pregnant. Um, IVF is definitely diagnostic in addition to therapeutic. It doesn't always have the precision of diagnosis that we would like of saying, oh, well, this specific type of organelle within your eggs, it's not functioning well. And so if you do X, Y, and Z, stand on your head, do 16 jumping jacks backwards on a Tuesday, then you will get better egg quality. But it, it can point to getting 11 eggs, only six of which were mature, mature and only two fertilized. Like those are all pretty low percentages. And so, you know, it may be that out of those 11 eggs, there was only the expectation that you were going to get six or seven based on the sizes they were and, and those types of things. But it sounds like there's an egg issue. That's a tough one. Susan, she said, I think she was on 450 of HMG plus HCG every other day. It said 450 units of gonal F and 40 units of low-dose HCG. I mean, I agree with everything Carrie said. And, you know, for an individual person, you know, unfortunately there's not, if this, then that, there's not a very specific recipe that if this doesn't work out, we need to do this. 
you know, there truly is an art and a science to it. And from everything I can see, I mean, you were on a lot of medicines. I mean, they were really trying to push you hard. That's the one thing I, I'm not clear on. Like, I'm surprised that they would have put a 34-year-old with an AMH of 1.8 on 450 HMG, that sounds like a pretty hefty dose of medicine. So I wonder if there was some inkling earlier that maybe... She said her antral follicle counts were low prior to the cycle. So maybe that's why they did it. But that still is a lot of, a lot of medicine. So but she started off with 11, and I mean, 11 follicles, which is what you would expect. Yeah. You know, it's definitely disappointing that with an AMH of 1.8, you didn't respond to 450. You know, there's a few different protocols potentially in it. We all have our favorite little tweaks of different protocols we can do. Usually when I see a patient that doesn't respond to a pretty hefty dose of medicine with a pretty good AMH, you know, I do worry that there's something else going on there that we're not able to pick up with our testing. And again, there's some other protocols that your doctor could try, but I usually tell my patients, you know, particularly with something called microdose Lupron flare, that's an older protocol that we used to use with patients that were not as good a responders as we would like. Sometimes I've seen patients do really well with that when they haven't done well with an antagonist protocol. But, you know, I kind of tell my patients that, you know, when I'm worried about their ovarian reserve, I start out with the protocol I think that's going to work the best and be the most aggressive the very first time. And if it doesn't work out, there's some tweaks and things that we can change. But I don't have that much up my sleeve a second time around as I as I do the first time around. What I would say, though, is you had, I think, what, two mature eggs? Is that right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, like Carrie said, every now and then you'll have patients that have two mature and they both fertilize and they're both genetically normal. And, you know, if those had both fertilized and been genetically normal, you know, you might be having a different conversation with us. So you didn't do as well as I would have expected, but as long as you're making eggs and you're able to create embryos, there's still some hope there. And, you know, the hope would be that if, you know, your doctor did change protocols and do something a little bit differently and be able to get a few more eggs, I mean, all it takes is one embryo to get you pregnant that's genetically normal. So... If it were me personally, I would try a second time just to see. And then, you know, if the second time didn't turn out much differently, that's the point where I would start to look at other options like donor eggs and donor embryos. One thing I'd like to add is kind of looking at this whole thing is that I totally agree. I would do another cycle. You know, when we have somebody who the things don't kind of fit together, just like you were talking about, Abby, that sometimes the tests that we have available don't test all the things that we know could happen. And, you know, in this type of situation, I'm wondering if we might have like some sort of receptor issue. And this is coming from like the queen of Lupron triggers. Like I live and die by Lupron triggers. And I think they are fantastic. And they are fantastic, in my opinion, for 98% of the population. And then there's that 2% that I'm like, oh, crap, that didn't work the way I wanted it to. And this could be that type of person that I, I mean, I think we've probably all seen it that with a lot of receptor issues, the more you can flood it, (laughs) the better off you may be. And so if you had a dual trigger, most of the time that's with a low dose of HCG. So maybe like 2,500 units or something like that, because it doesn't sound like you're the person I'm worried about getting hyperstimulation syndrome. You know, you may be the person who needs a 10,000 unit trigger, though we don't do that very often. You may be the person that that may need to be done on to see if you could get a different result. Um, Like I said, I mean, I don't do many of those, but I definitely have had those people. And especially in somebody who 
I know how they're going to respond in a stimulation. We know how you're going to respond in a stimulation. But what we want is to make those six eggs be six mature eggs instead of two mature eggs, because, you know, in IVF, it's a numbers game. And the, the more we can hold on to, the better off. And so that's what I would say bombard you with HCG at trigger. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's reasonable. Yeah. It'd be interested to see what your and, and your doc's gonna know because you said you had your levels checked. So they'll know if your HCG level was a really, really high or if it was just enough to get the anticipated maturity and might benefit by a little bit more. All right. Okay. So we have a question that I'm gonna need someone to do a little Google search on real quick. <laughs> um Hello, my husband's hair is thinning and he recently started using the Shapiro MD prescription hair loss products at main.shapiromd.com for reference. I was wondering if using the system could harm his fertility once we start trying for a baby. Thank you. Oh, okay. What do we got there, lady? Have you guys heard of this treatment before? I don't know that I have heard of this particular... Mm-mm. So do we know what his sperm count is now? No. So no one's ever checked the sperm count. Correct. And so the concern, part of the reason why we're worried about the concern is that a lot of times these are anti-testosterones. Right. And that can impair sperm production. When you're looking at things like finasteride, that's more problematic. But um, salt, palmetto, coconut oil, epigallocatechin? Gallate, argan oil, pumpkin seed oil, chia seed oil, caffeine extract, and avocado oil, refined by science, finasteride. So that's one of the, yeah, that's in there. Tretinoin, minoxidil, iodine, L-tyrosine, vitamin B12, selenium, and then uh, beta-glucan. So the biggest... So there is finasteride in there. It's saying on the men's regrowth kit that this is a quote from the website. These patented hair care solutions contain natural active ingredients, which let's rephrase that natural does not always mean safe. Natural just means it came from the ground. Tornadoes are natural. <laughs> that have been shown to fight the effects of DHT, which is dihydrotestosterone, quote, the hormone widely believed to be the leading care of hair loss. So... He could always leave a sperm count. If you're worried about it, he could always freeze sperm just in case. You know, the good thing about men, if they're on anything that we think could affect their fertility, once they stop it within three months, roughly, they're back to their baseline in terms of producing sperm. Not all men are going to bounce back. Yeah, not all men, but on finasteride, though. I mean, it would be a right, real person. Testosterone may be a different story, but finasteride, I think he'd probably bounce back. But I would first get his count looked at. I'd get a sperm count done first because you don't know what his count is right now. And certainly if he had some sperm parameter abnormalities, I probably would say, don't try it. You know, if you want to try it, I'd have him freeze some sperm just so that you have that for backup. And then, you know, three months later, if his count drops, then I would have him stop it because it probably is impacting his sperm count. Any thoughts, Susan? I agree with that. It's probably a small risk, but I do think you're taking a risk. And so if you're worried, see where you are. Plus, if you see where you are and you already have problems, then you know you don't want to be adding this on top of it. And then you need to go see a reproductive endocrinologist to have things checked out because we want to make you all as healthy as we possibly can. Yeah. Seen and agree with the both. All right. Good stuff. So our next question 
Hi all, I absolutely love your podcast and I feel like you provide such great insights into all things fertility. I am currently going through a very difficult situation as my husband and I started our first round of IVF. I was on my last day of stems before trigger shot when my doctor's office called to tell me that my doctor tested positive for COVID and they would have to cancel everything for the rest of the month. Unfortunately, he's the only doctor at the practice and there's no backup doctor or clinic. I feel like I have done all this for nothing and there's just another roadblock getting in our way. We are just absolutely devastated, even though my IVF nurse said we should be able to get back on track for next month. I guess I'm wondering if there's anything else I can really do to get my body back on track for the next month after losing all the eggs my body worked so hard to create this month. Any advice, feedback would be greatly appreciated. Thanks so much. Ooh, that one hits home. Yeah, very much so. Lots of COVID going around everywhere. Yeah. Um, Get your vaccines, folks. Get your vaccines. We were talking before about how all of us have had to cancel cycles for patients because the patients have tested positive. So the good thing about all of this is that you did well on your stim. If you did well once, you're likely to do well again. One month is not going to make anything do or die. And so when you get to the point where you can kind of pull back and say, this is an emotional loss that I'm feeling. Know that it's the emotional loss. It's not a physical loss because those eggs were going to go one way or the other, whether you were on stem meds or you weren't, those were the eggs that were getting recruited. They were gone one way or the other. And so that doesn't make a difference. So it's not like you recruited a ton of eggs out of deep storage and you're just throwing them away. Like these were these were eggs that were going to grow and were going to be done this month, whether you had stim or whether you were just having a normal month. And the other thing is that your doc now has one stim cycle and all of us make adjustments or know that we're comfortable not making adjustments based on how the first cycle went. So they're going to fine tune things saying, you know, she did really well, but let's just tinker with this or no, we don't need to because this looked really good. And so there is some benefit to this, even though the waiting for a month does feel heartbreaking. And the last thing that any fertility patient wants to hear is stop. We need to wait. Yeah. Cancellations of an IVF cycle are upsetting no matter what the reason. And, you know, none of us want to have to do that. But the reality of life right now is, you know, obviously nobody wants to transmit COVID to people that don't have it. And so, you know, I agree with Carrie. I think, you know, obviously, and I've done IVF myself, you've given yourself lots of injections, you've had lots of ultrasounds, you put a lot of effort into it. And now, you know, the rug just kind of got pulled out from underneath you. So I understand kind of the emotions that you're having. But I think, you know, hopefully, if you stimulate well next time, and I'm like, Carrie, I think there's no reason you wouldn't stimulate well next time. Hopefully, a year from now, you can look back on it and go, you know, that was just a blip in the road. But it's hard when you're living through it at the moment not to just make, you know, nothing is a a molehill. Everything seems to be a mountain. And really, in retrospect, I think, hopefully, a year from now, you'll look back and say, you know, that was really just a molehill in the whole scheme of things. It wasn't a big deal. But while you're living it, it's, it's tough to live through it. But I do think a huge advantage is you've had a practice run, like Carrie said, and you, and you can, you know, your doctor will be able to tweak it and hopefully have you make you have even a better stimulation next time around. Yeah. I, I mean, it's one of those things that I can tell you that as your physician, I mean, I know you're like exceptionally upset, frustrated, irritated, angry. You're going through a, a grief cycle because of the loss of the cycle. And I would say that's completely normal. No, your physician is really trying to do the best thing that he or she could do for you at that moment. And obviously exposing you to COVID 
during a surgery <laughs> with not it's not it's yeah a bad idea all around we ride that emotional roller coaster with you <laughs> we really do and so i am sure that wasn't canceled lightly obviously and you know i'm sure your doctor's office is trying to do what they can to make things as appropriate as they can for you. And really kind of focusing on the future is one of the best things. Getting yourself in the right mindset is the best thing you can do going into this next cycle. Because I can say that if you go into a cycle thinking something's not going to work or having a more negative than positive attitude, it actually makes it harder for us to get you pregnant. And so trying to, you know, take advantage of this time, just take some walks, go and pamper yourself and be like, okay, we're going to move forward and we're going to do this and we're going to do this right. Going into it with a positive attitude is going to help you as well. All right. Good, good episode here. So uh, to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more Also, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. We'd really love to hear from you. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook. So please hop on and leave us a comment. And if you have any suggestions for us for Instagram, let us know or Facebook. We'd really love to hear from you. You can also visit fertilitydocsandcensored.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All of our questions will be asked on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment or on one of our episodes about questions. So don't hold back. Let us know what you'd like to know from us. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. We want to thank Ovation Fertility for sponsoring today's podcast. On the road to parenthood, many of our listeners find themselves in need of fertility testing, IVF, and other related services, such as egg donation, genetic testing, or gestational surrogacy. Ovation is a one-stop shop for services that many people may need as they go through fertility care. You can learn more about Ovation services for hopeful parents at ovationfertility.com.